Welcome to Theosophia, a platform for women's voices and theology. Today is round two with Reverend Courtney Bryant-Prince, a doctoral candidate in womanist ethics at Vanderbilt University. She's actually defending her dissertation this week, so please send some good thoughts and prayers her way so we can soon call her Dr. Bryant-Prince. So proud of you, Courtney. So this week, we really flesh out Courtney's work on the erotic and eros. Courtney posits the erotic is not simply sex, but it is a mode of relationality through the flesh. We chat about bodies, womanist thought, pornographic ideologies, and how the church is asking the wrong questions. Her work in language she's given to theology and ethics of the Eros has been extremely formative to my life, so I'm so pleased and honored to share this womanist wisdom with you all. Here's Courtney. Is this what your dissertation question is lately? Is the erotic, how the erotic and the Holy Spirit are related? Yes, it's similar. Yes, yes. That is a thread throughout all the chapters. Okay. Okay. So at the beginning, I mentioned your work. And I was explaining to someone about your work today, actually. And I was saying, you know, how you focus on the erotic as a divine resource for moral agency. So why mm-hmm. don't first you talk about what you mean by the erotic? Because mm-hmm. I think that would be helpful to frame this conversation. Definitely. I think it's necessary. So um, I think that we are often confused about what the erotic is. I think that when we think erotic, when anyone, if you say the word erotic, they immediately think of sex. Yeah. And while sex is a component of the erotic, it is not it in its totality. Um, I think for me, the erotic is a mode of relationality and that mode of relationality can be relationality with yourself, relationality with God and relationality with the world. Right. So the ways in which we engage the world and the way the world engages us. Um, I would say that the erotic actually exists on a paradigm and that, and so that, so there's the erotic on one end of the paradigm okay. and then there is the pornographic on the uh, other. So okay. I would say that the, that the erotic and the pornographic are diametrically opposed okay. to one another. Mm-hmm. And so the, er- the erotic or eros love manifested in and through the flesh period. So anytime that the flesh or your body any any time that you are manifesting love with your body, it is erotic. Okay. So it could be um, a mother brushing her daughter's hair. It can be a daughter rubbing ointment on her sickly and ailing father's back. But it can also be two lovers in coitus. Right. Um, I think that what we often confuse for the erotic is actually the pornographic. Yeah. And I would describe the, the pornographic as the, the exploiting of another person physically, yeah. emotionally, mm-hmm. or spiritually. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that we've been talking about is 
like this notion of allowing our bodies to be our own, right? Because as women, we have, our bodies have been dispossessed. And as Black women, not only have our bodies been dispossessed, but our humanity has essentially been stolen from us, has been ripped away um, because of white supremacy and because of the ways um, the Western empire has uh, used Black women's bodies as objects. So one of the things that I argue in my dissertation is that it is through the erotic that we rediscover both our humanity and our sense of subjectivity. Um, and that what has happened to black women and to women in general is in fact a, a pornographic rendering mm -hmm. of, mm -hmm. of our bodies, right? So yeah. our bodies are used to titillate. Our bodies are used for other people's pleasures. Our bodies are used to prop up empire mm -hmm. through work. And all of, the, all of these things would be considered pornographic, right? Yeah. Where the erotic would be more so like about a, a wholesome concern and a demonstration of that concern and love through one's body. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes I think that we um, settle for the pornographic, right? Yeah. We settle for the lust. We yeah. settle for, oh, it's going to feel good in this moment, even though I they're going to be born next week, right? You know, um, we yeah. settle for the pornographic for the quick shot, uh, the, the dopamine that, it, that we get. But the erotic is something that is more lasting, more sustaining, and quite honestly, creative. Yeah. Right. And so when I use the term creative, I don't mean it in the sense, I mean, so certainly it's, cre it, I, I mean it in all of the senses, in the sense that um, divine creativity in the sense that it can not there uh, possible. Um, but I also mean in the sense of like rejuvenating. Mm -hmm. I, I mean it in the sense of correcting. I mean it in the sense of uh, protecting. I mean, in all of those senses, the erotic is creative, which makes sense when you think about it. When we think about sex and what sex, one of the things that sex is for is to create. So we automatically assume that this creation of life is another person, progeny, a baby, but right. no, it's not just the creation of life, right? It's the creation of a bond. It's the creation right. of pleasure. It's the creation of good feelings. It's the creation of healing. There are all sorts of things that happen through the erotic. But when you have those sorts of encounters, those sorts of fleshly encounters that do not bear fruit, yeah, I would describe those as pornographic, especially when they're exploitative. Right. Yeah, I remember doing a pub theology one time. I believe the topic was marriage, mm -hmm. um, which was my what my work was. My thesis was on, I called it making marriage erotic or something like this. Because mm -hmm. I, I used Audre Lorde and Sean Copeland and others that I know who you've been using to um, talk about pleasure being important in marriage and not just procreation and that sex... Um, was about a bond and a relationship. And in, in Genesis and the, you know, the creation story, one of my parishioners brought up in this pub theology that, you know, the purpose of, of marriage or what we learn about Adam and Eve in the beginning was so that man wouldn't be alone. Mm. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it was about companionship. It wasn't necessarily yeah. about, producing more humans it was about mm -hmm. it is not good for me to, to be alone with. exactly 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but we'd never name. I, I just love that you're naming and claiming the Eros and erotic um, with the divine because it's so helpful mm-hmm. in thinking about these types of things in a fresh way that our society and the church has just really kind of perverted or um, mm-hmm. made pornographic, like you said. And I think even the church, the church adds to that pornography mm-hmm. type thinking about it. So we were talking about Eros and why the church perpetuates mm. a crappy understanding mm. of bodies and, mm-hmm. and too, just like what love looks like and relationality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And pleasure and sex is a part of that. Yeah. Yeah. And putting rules on it. Mm. I mean, there's got to be some rules. I mean, we can't, live without some virtues and ethics right but yeah definitely i mean and i think because i think because sex and the erotic are so powerful yeah i know you do need some rules yeah you do need some rules of engagement to keep things healthy right you know certainly but i think that the church in general so i think the modern day church is just concerned about the wrong things like the modern day church is concerned about who's sleeping with who but they never ask the questions why, you know, like, you know, so like, I don't care if it's two women, I don't care if it's two men, I don't care if it's a man and a woman. The question is not uh, who are you sleeping with, but, but why are you sleeping with them? And, And even, and even more so, like, let's even take it away from sex. You know, when we're engaging with one another, like what is motivating us? How, how are we motivated to treat one another and what is guiding that? Because so much, of what we do is guided by um, our capitalistic framework, right? Mm-hmm. So I remember um, when I was an undergrad, uh, one of my professors said one day very crudely, you know, you are who you fuck, huh. right? And so like when we think about the ways in which women are sort of given this pecking order, you know? So like when you're a black man and you become sexful, successful, you want to go out and find yourself like a nice white woman, a blonde one, if, if possible, <laughs> <laughs> right? Where, and then the black woman and her kinky hair uh, is left, you know, at the bottom of the totem pole. Right. Um, and so that sex becomes this way of validating oneself and validating one's worth yes. um, socially. Uh-huh. Right. But but the same can be said about any sort of relationality. Like if we think about W.E.B. Du Bois, when he initially found out or realized that he was black, it was because he tried to give a Valentine's Day card to uh, a young white female uh, classmate who looked at him like he was crazy. Like, I can't accept this from you. You, you know, you don't cause my stock, my social stock to yeah. go down. Like, yeah. Get out of here with that. Yeah. Get out of here with that. Um, and so, I mean, this was far from sexual, but, you know, at a very young age, this young lady recognized that right. to, you know, be in any, to be seen relating to a black person would cause their social capital or her social yeah. capital to decrease. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a real thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking about this more theologically, 
Mm-hmm. You, you talk about how the erotic and the Holy Spirit are related. Can you mm-hmm. go into that for me? Yeah. So, you know, I've been reading and thinking about the erotic for almost 10 years now. Um, and one of the things that has always been fascinating to me was the way that in the Bible, sex is always considered a metaphor for our relationship with God, that it's supposed to be this very deeply intimate, pleasurable thing, right? When you experience God, you don't just experience God with your mind. Like, you know, you get goosebumps, you get a sense of a feeling of fullness. Like there are all of these sensory things that happen when you engage with God or when you experience and encounter the spirit. Um, But in addition to that, as I was reading, you know, as I've been reading about uh, the erotic, um, The erotic is this incredible power. It's this power that causes us to come alive, right? It's a a power or an energy that reveals truths to us that were once hidden. Uh, It can liberate us from from dispossession. Uh, It can reveal truths to us about justice. I mean, there are all of these things that the erotic can do. And, and again, and it calls, us, it calls us to one another. Like the erotic is that force that causes us to cohere. It's like what in the Bible, it talks about deep being called unto deep. Well, the erotic is, is that very, like it is our desire for one another and to be in community to, with one another and to engage in one another deeply, right? And all of these things in my mind sound just like the Holy Spirit. Like when I think about the Holy Spirit and what happens when um, the presence of the Spirit is felt in the church. I mean, people are set free. They are revitalized. They, there is revelation. There is um, a call to become one's best self. There's a sense of camaraderie and closeness that people feel. And so I'm just trying to ascertain what, what's really going on here? Like, it, could the erotic in fact be the Holy Spirit? It makes sense in the yeah. sense that Eros is love manifested in and through the flesh. And we all know, I mean, if we went to Sunday school, that God is love, right? And so as human beings, as we manifest love or we manifest God in our flesh for one another through acts of care, through acts of protection, through acts of justice, that in fact, what might be happening is we as human beings may be becoming transmitters or conduits for the Holy Spirit. Could we call this Sophia? Yeah, I think so. I think we could call it Sophia, but I would, I would um, want, I would challenge us to think of Sophia not just in a rational sense, yeah, right, of wisdom, but that this is more like this sort of embodied yeah. wisdom, right? That's this good. application yeah. of wisdom that um, that we experience and that 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 sets our bodies on fire. And when I say that it sets our bodies on fire, I mean, in the sense that it, it, it brings, it brings us to a vitality that we didn't have before. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, absolutely. We could call this Sophia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just think of Sophia too, as creative energy. Mm -hmm. I think the wisdom texts talk about her as kind of creative Mm -hmm. energy and wind life force. Yes. These types of things. 
Yes. So that sounds very similar, but, but manifesting through our bodies mm-hmm. and our minds as mm-hmm. one connected, unified thing, which That's right. is so important to your project. Right. Yep. You know, I was going to tell you too, in reading your piece, unrelated to what we're talking about now, but just your idea of wanting, as you said earlier, in womanist thought to keep the body and soul connected and unified mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and not treat them separately. Mm-hmm. Um, Chantal and I were talking about this in her episode mm-hmm. as it relates to salvation. Mm-hmm. And she called, you know, treating the whole person, the body and the soul. She called that justice. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, uh... Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I could understand how she could say mm-hmm. that. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, hmm. But for you, mm-hmm. I'm just trying to think of a womanist. Because I would say she's doing womanist thought with her Who? project as well. Oh, Chantel? Uh-huh. Oh, I don't know about her project. Yeah. Just uh, salvation of... We have to consider in the act of like salvation our bodies and our souls. It can't mm-hmm. just be a matter of the soul. It has to also be a matter of the body. Okay. Well, yeah, that's been, yeah, that's been stated by many a black theologian. When I say black theologian, I mean both men and women, yeah. this notion that we have to stop thinking about the eschatological, right? So yeah. black people are constantly mm-hmm. like, Oh, by and by we'll be fine. And you know, when I see Jesus, everything will be all right. right. And what we are noticing about the post civil rights generation is that no, that's not acceptable. Actually, um, the post-civil rights generation is saying, no, we need to be able to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Yeah. Um, and that our relationship with God can in fact facilitate the manifestation of justice, the manifestation of a change in the material, re- in our in our lived experience, in our material realities and in the here and now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So going back to Eros as a theological source of reflection, mm-hmm. you talked about Eros also, though, as a means of manipulation and sexual mm-hmm. seduction. Mm-hmm. And how does yeah. sexual seduction mm-hmm. work or not mm-hmm. in this? Yeah, so this is one of the things that I'm wrestling with in the third chapter of my dissertation. And I, I'm not convinced that it does. So I don't, I, in my mind, manipulation is exploitative. But what I've been trying to reconcile in my mind is this notion that, so I've been thinking a lot about how Black women in the past and in the present use their bodies, use their charm, and use their erotic power um, as a protective measure uh-huh. against um, those who have power over them. And so when I think of those who have power over them, over them I'm usually talking about black men or white men. Um, and so what, we, what I found is that certainly, like when, when a woman has no other resources but her body, then typically there, a degree of sexual manipulation will come to pass. Um, now I I don't think that I can, um, validate this as a liberative ethic, but I will say that it it is a survival ethic, right? Mm -hmm. And so with that, I'm not here to call it virtue 
um, in a Christian, from a Christian perspective, yeah. but within the confines of the um, circumstances that they are dealing with, within a paradigm where to be desired makes you more human in a capitalistic framework, then yes, it can be perceived as virtue within those sorts of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Now, the question for me becomes, what can we glean? As a Christian ethicist, is there anything that I can glean from the strategies that these, women's, that, that these women are engaging in to understand more about the erotic or to understand more about how we as women can become free? And if there are any other options that are not so exploitative. So, and, and, and it's troublesome for me because, you know, when you think about people who are being oppressed, whether that be black women or women in general, um, when you are attempting to uh, become free of that oppression, you know, you, you sort of think, well, by any means necessary. Um, and I, I don't know, I'm, I don't know that I'm a, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about it yet, but I do know that if I'm true to the paradigm that I've established in terms of, you know, the erotic and the pornographic being, um, being opposites, then, okay. Are there ways that we can secure our liberation without reifying the very same dynamics that have gotten us into this mess so that it's not so much about us flipping it so that we're on top, but changing it so that God can be sovereign and we can relate as children of God with one another. I was thinking of seduction more of like in relationships, um, just ethics in, in romantic relationships. And if that's virtuous or not, so when you say that, do you mean like uh, romantic loving relationships? Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, like, listen, pleasure, pleasure is a, a right. Quite honestly, it's part of being free and part of being human. So, I mean, I think that we should celebrate pleasure, uh-huh. but I think that, wow, and I'm going to sound like Thomas Aquinas again, <laughs> but I think that we should celebrate pre- pleasure in the right circumstances, right? Yeah. Our, our pleasure cannot be predicated on another person's exploitation or another person's subordination. I mean, although there are some folks who are into that, (laughs) um, but but at the same time, you know, it becomes a question of consent. And it's interesting because lately uh, I've been really zeroing in on this question of consent because without someone else's consent, it becomes pornographic and it becomes exploitative. Yeah. Sometimes violent. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, sexual violence can be some of the worst violence because our sexualities are so deeply uh, entrenched in our spirituality so that that sort of psychic violation can be very difficult to come back from. It makes sense to me. I know you've studied a little Foucault with me, but how Mm -hmm. Foucault talked about our sexualities and our sex being all of who we are almost. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I don't know if I agree with him. Or that we've made it that way, that culture's made it that way. I don't think he would agree with that either. Um, Okay. But that's how we've, we've made it. And we buy into that logic and that um, narrative Mm -hmm. that these types of violence are even more damaging Mm -hmm. too. Part of Absolutely. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think that so much of what goes on, I mean, in the world now, just because of the the ways in which the United States is so influential on the world stage. But I mean, the hypersexuality, it, it, it runs a threat through all things. And so the sec, I mean, I, yeah, everything turns on the sexual, like, ultimately who we choose to engage with, who we choose to do business with, who we choose to live near. All of these things are very much predicated on who we desire to have in our space. And oftentimes that's about a a sexual attraction. It is. Yeah. It is. And it drives me absolutely crazy Mm. because I, I know, I, I don't know. I just feel like two things. I know I have privilege because I'm an attractive white woman Mm. and that, that, allows me to walk around in spaces pretty easily. Mm-hmm. A, lot, a lot of spaces that are, I guess, have a lot of status, right? So I have status because of my attractiveness and my ethnicity. Right. But what, so those things can be a good thing. Mm-hmm. Pretty privileged. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but they can also be, I'm always up for male consumption. Mm-hmm. wherever I walk in the world and especially use a black woman, an attractive mm-hmm. black woman mm-hmm. um, constantly. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I, I just, it's very frustrating. And I, I bartended my way through graduate school mm-hmm. and those were some of the worst times to be objectified and constantly men talking about my appearance. But I even told you that story that one time in field ed, because you were my one of my field ed TA. That's the other TA. That's the other TA. Man. <laughs> we did a lot together. Where I said the man I was working with at um, Room at the Inn was asking me about my occupation. I'm like, oh, I'm trying to be a priest. I'm in divinity school, whatever. Mm-hmm. You're said, too pretty. You're, you're too pretty to be a priest. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, oh, my God. Yep. Yep. Um, that made me so mad. I mean, I know he was an old guy and he was just being cute with me, but still like mm-hmm. that's probably what a lot of men think. Mm-hmm. Certainly. When they yeah, look because... at me, that's not the first thing they think. They don't think, Oh yeah, she's a preacher. She's a priest. No, nah. they just see a pretty girl. Right. You know? Yeah, that's right. And it's particularly frustrating. Yep. Yeah. I don't, certain I'm not kinds taking of bodies. seriously. Right. Because certain bo- kinds of bodies do certain things. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And your kind of body and your kind of face, you, you sit there and look pretty and giggle for the, the guys so yeah. that they, yeah, yeah. And I better smile, damn it. You, you better or, smile. Or man, have I gotten comments and said stuff about not smiling. Holy. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. I thought that was only something that happened in black communities. Wow. No. Okay. Yeah. And maybe it's, you know, the service industry too. You're just, you have mm. to put on this front that you have to be happy and ready and excited to serve others for 10 hours on your feet all day. Right. As they harass you. Right. Um, I should be happy about that, I guess. <laughs> Anyways, I digress. Um, but I love this that you've named the erotic as a mode of relationality and how we engage with others. Yes. I'm loving this. Thank you. What else is there? Well, one of the things that I talk about in the final chapter, which is a chapter on justice is how, how necessary the erotic is to, um, 
how, how necessary the erotic is so that we can identify with one another. So yeah, the real well, solidarity piece, was that come up? Yes, there? exactly. Embodied solidarity. So um, I, I was quite taken by what happened in Charlottesville, Virginia um, this mm, summer say more, say more. with the young woman who was killed by the white supremacists who was mowed down in the streets um, and how the nation then took that opportunity to recognize that we had a racial problem. You know, many a black man and many a black woman had been killed repeatedly, but it wasn't until a white woman's body uh, became uh, the sacrificial lamb for the moment that the the nation decided it was time to really hurt. Um, And so one of the things that I said is that in this moment of Trump and in this moment where, you know, we have this extrajudicial violence or even the moment of me too, that when we place our bodies in similar circumstances, and I would, I would describe that as a, a, a practice of the erotic. When we put, when we put our bodies in the same spaces out of love for one another, rather than living in these segregated silos, um, that what it causes is that it, it causes um, us to grow in similar values, similar priorities, similar concerns. Um, and so that all that we do with our bodies, you know, we, we may think of like the intentional things that we do, but even those like simple things that don't think that don't seem so, um, so important, like sitting next to someone that you might not know, and really engaging with them as an individual and having these embodied experiences with one another that are not facilitated by technology, or by entertainment, you know, because oftentimes, um, when people when, when people, uh, people's experience of the other is oftentimes facilitated by entertainment or, or technology, right? We don't have these actual intimate interactions with flesh on flesh where right. we're speaking. And so as a result, we end up living in these very separate spaces with very different concerns. And so the bringing together of our, the, the calling together of our bodies and bringing our bodies into the same space actually helps us to understand our interdependence in a more meaningful way. Yeah. Yeah. And so I I would consider that kind of thing erotic as well. The other thing is that the erotic is not just, as I said, about, you know, your interactions with the world, but you can have erotic encounters with yourself as well. Uh So uh, I've been thinking a lot about um, the ways in which self-care can be an erotic act. Yeah. Right. So that you are, you are manifesting love through yourself through embodied practices and those can be considered erotic as well. And then finally, you know, that our relationship with God and our worship of God is also erotic. Um, And I think that this is something that though the dominant um, population can, can learn something from the African-American community and the ways in which we bring our full selves, our bodies, you know, to the worship moments through singing, through dancing and all of these things. I think that we have known, I think my community has known for some time, the role of the body in in harnessing uh, a connection with the erotic. I mean, I'm sorry, with the divine. Yeah. 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 I don't think it is uh, any, I don't, I don't think it is by chance that God (laughs) 
had Israel show their love for him or her by cutting off pieces of their genitals. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't, you know what I mean? Like, I, yeah. how, how much do you really love me? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all bound up. I don't, you know, I don't yeah. think that it is happenstance that um, Jesus was born of a virgin. You know, I mean, like, these these things matter. Our bodies matter. Yeah. And I think that as I think number one, when we as Christians begin to realize that, then we can become more intentional about the ways in which we use our bodies to manifest the kingdom of God on earth. And I think that that sort of thing will also be contagious so that others will see it as well. But at this point, I think that the, what we understand as the church in our society is so body phobic. Oh my that, like, Lord. that nobody wants nobody oh wants to my. even be bothered you know nobody wants to be bothered with people who don't know what to do with like the the real stuff of living and i say too i do i've done pub theology a couple weeks ago during advent about the incarnation and i talk about i make us go through okay jesus you know in the hypostatic union was fully human Fully mm-hmm. divine, mm-hmm. one like a a mixture of these two substances, right? Mm-hmm. Um. So what? Like he was in a body. Mm-hmm. So what do we know about bodies mm-hmm. and what Christ experienced in his flesh? Mm-hmm. And so we're you know having things named off, and then I say, well, he had to have what dreams, right? Right, right. We've talked about this a lot in class. Like mm-hmm. if God came to be in our flesh, God experienced all of our fleshiness. All of it. And that's part of it. Yeah. And I'm not saying that in a um, erotic way in in terms of the negative way. Right. Exactly. A natural um, bodily process that connects Mm -hmm. him with the world. Yes. Jesus had sexual desires. Absolutely. And there's no sin in having sexual desires. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I wanted to read a little piece from Sean Copeland to see how you read her on solidarity. Mm-hmm. She said, if personhood is now understood to flow from formative living and community rather than individualism. Yeah. From the embrace of difference and interdependence mm-hmm. rather than their exclusion. Yep. Then we can realize our personhood only in solidarity with the exploited, despised, poor other. Mm-hmm. And isn't that what Jesus did? Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. And, and this is actually, uh, this is part of where I got my argument for my fourth chapter. We can't live in these silos and, and never get out. One of the things that um, womanists and black theologians believe is that we experience not only our humanity, but our, our divinity through ethical relationality with others. Yeah. And so when we treat, when we exploit people, when we treat them in a pornographic way, we degrade our humanity. And we take up the way that the world tells us we should carry ourselves rather than how God says we should. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes, Courtney. (laughs) This is why like racism and sexism 
And all the isms drive me crazy is we're degrading one one another's yes. gifts. Yep. Our God given gifts to the world. Yep. Degrading them. Yep. Making them sad. other instead of living amongst one another like like Jesus did in the incarnation, came to live amongst us. That's right. Not just white people, not just brown people. Mm-hmm. All, all people and all and not only did he not only did he come to live among us but he he relinquished himself of his privilege yeah. right it wasn't like oh well i'm gonna come and live among you as the son of god i'm gonna come and live among you as one who is hungry and one who yeah. hurts yeah. you know and not only that but i will meet you at your need as well not for you to glorify me but so that you may be made full and yeah and what i think you've helped me understand more is how our bodies can inform our ethics mm-hmm. as much as our theologies right like mm-hmm. i was noticing that you said something about faulty ideologies to the you're talking about me young chung attributes faulty ideologies to the deformation of our concept of God and therefore mm-hmm. our ethics. Mm-hmm. So what we think about our bodies and what society tells us about our bodies mm. really messes up our concepts about God mm-hmm. and then, and then mm-hmm. how we decide to live in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what for you have attributed to black women having all sorts of health problems. And- yeah. Um, emotional issues so yeah that's right it's a real thing it It is it affects our bodies and our spirits when we degrade one another and can't come into real real solidarity Mm -hmm. and encounter the other in this erotic relationality yeah it is a, a very holy sacred theological thing so i appreciate you calling attention to that with your work i think it's gonna you're gonna help change a lot of lives for sure oh thank you ma'am thank you thank you Thanks again, Courtney, for sharing your extremely important wisdom and work on erotic theology and ethics. I believe these types of understandings can really help impact the church and our work in positive, healthy, healing ways. Stay tuned. Next week, y'all, we will be having another Baptist preacher on the podcast, the Reverend Amy Violet. Amy's a professor at Belmont, an entrepreneur, actor, church planter, and woman of the West, hailing from Santa Fe, New Mexico. That will be a fun conversation, so y'all don't want to miss that one. And as always, please rate and review us on iTunes. And check out our website at theosophiapodcast.com and find us on the- theologycorner.net. Peace, everyone. <laughs>